Our text this morning will be the verses 9 through 11 of Colossians chapter 1. This afternoon we'll consider the verses 12 to 14. So let's read together Colossians 1, the verses 9 to 11. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. So far, our text. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, what have you been filling your mind with lately? Think about the vast amount of media that's available to us in the modern world. Not only books and movies, but YouTube videos, maybe your favorite TV series on Netflix. And this comes with its pros and cons. We're able to learn very quickly, perhaps, about some topic that interests us. But on the other hand, mindless scrolling through social media only fills our mind with really very trivial things. And we easily become so filled up we become full to the point we can't take anymore. Even secular mental health experts are recognizing this. Many advocate for taking time away from our phones and computers so that our minds, in some sense, can empty themselves. What have you been filling your mind with? And Paul uses, actually, this same metaphor, the metaphor of being filled up in our text this morning. He says in verse 9, We have not ceased to pray for you, Colossians, asking that you may be filled, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Now, he doesn't use this language because he's dealing with individuals who have become information saturated and now need to fill their minds with something different. No. The problem was this. In Colossae, there were false teachers who were whispering into the ears of the Christians, who were telling them that they were spiritually empty, and that by integrating new Greco-Roman philosophy or pagan cult practices or other Jewish rituals, perhaps the Christians might become more full, that is, their Christian experience might abound. So how does Paul respond in our text to these false teachers? Well, he prays, indeed, that the Colossians would be made full. That is, he's, he's fully ready to acknowledge that the Colossians have not yet reached the fullness of their Christian experience. But at the same time, he strongly disagrees with the false teachers he says that this greater fullness is not going to come from integrating new, quote-unquote, spiritual practices into their version of Christianity. But it was going to come from growing in the knowledge of God. And for us as Christians, we ought to remind ourselves that 
we are in this very same position. As long as we live in this life, we have not yet reached the fullness of our Christian knowledge. By God's grace, of course, we have made a beginning, indeed. But we have not made an ending of it yet. We've not yet come to the point when finally we have it all right, or when things fall perfectly into place. So perhaps for us too, we desire something more. And so for us too, Paul's prayer directs us away from the advice of spiritual gurus and appoints us to where that greater fullness is to be found. And that greater fullness is in knowing God. And so our theme this morning is be filled with the knowledge of God. And we'll see two points. First, we'll see the nature of this knowledge, and then we'll see the effect of this knowledge. So first on the nature of this knowledge. In the previous verses which we read together, the verses 3 through 8, Paul opens his letter to the Colossians by speaking about how thankful he is for the work that is being done there. The Colossians were showing faith, hope, and love. The the gospel is bearing fruit. The gospel is growing. The Colossians have a minister. A man named Epaphras is ministering faithfully to the congregation. And now Paul, having said what he's thankful for, he moves on now to his petitions. He now tells the Colossians what it is that he prays to God for on their behalf. And what we find is that for Paul, the very progress that he sees in Colossae is also the focus of his petitions. And Paul makes this especially clear by using the exact same vocabulary in his thanksgiving as in his petitions. And he wants to stress to the Colossians the fact that what he is praying for is in direct continuity with what God has already been doing in the church. You can notice how both verse 6 and verse 10 highlight the same ideas. On the one hand, Paul's thankful that the gospel is bearing fruit and growing. Now in verse 10, Paul alludes to the same thing when he prays that the Colossians would bear fruit, that they would increase. Again, Paul's using this Similar vocabulary to stress the continuity. So when Paul prays then that the Colossians would be filled with knowledge, he's not asking here for a new process to begin. In fact, he's praying that the Colossians would keep drawing water from the same old well. Not that they would, that they would not look to a different source. The nature of this knowledge was such that it would come from God, that it would come through the ministry of his faithful church carried out by men like Paul, men like Epaphras, their pastor. Now Paul also makes it clear that this knowledge is a spiritual knowledge. He says in verse 9, We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And that phrase, wisdom and understanding, is worth noting. It's actually a quite common phrase from the Old Testament. For example, Moses tells the Israelites that the Ten Commandments will be their wisdom and understanding. 
And that if they follow the Ten Commandments faithfully, other peoples will see that the Israelites themselves are a wise and an understanding people. We read that from Deuteronomy chapter 4. So then here, Paul is really echoing this same concern. The same concern that Moses had hundreds of years before. His prayer here is that God's people would pay careful attention to God's revealed word. His desire is that God's people would come to see the goodness come to see the wisdom and the truth found in God's commands. That they would come to see that God's revealed word is the basis, that it is the foundation of a wise, a prudent, an intelligent, and a discerning life. Although the Israelites and the Colossians were different peoples, living in different times and places with radically different cultures and ways of thinking, The truth of God's revealed word cuts through it all. The truth and goodness of God's revealed word is timeless. It served God's Israelite people then, and so Paul prays that it would serve his Colossian people now. At the same time, however, Paul makes it clear that the knowledge of God's will comes through spiritual wisdom and understanding. What then does Paul mean by the word spiritual? Paul here is not referring to knowledge about spiritual things, we might say. But rather, he's referring to knowledge that comes from a spiritual source, that is the Holy Spirit. But if we pause for a moment, we ought to realize that this implies another very important fact. When Paul calls this knowledge spiritual, he's implying something. He's implying that it's not natural. In other words, God's will as he has revealed it in his word is not something that we come to understand naturally. All on our own. This is particularly striking because we should recognize that this is not always the way that it was. In the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 3, we confess this. We say, God created man good and in his image that is in true righteousness and holiness so that he might rightly know God his creator and heartily love him. That is, God created human beings in such a way that they knew God, that they loved him. He created Adam and Eve. They they naturally knew God. They knew his good commands. They loved him. They served him obediently. But when sin came into the world, it twisted that good nature. No longer do human beings know God's will naturally. Now as human beings, we are filled with confusion. Although we might still retain a basic notion of right and wrong, We so easily twist our own consciences. We delight in sin. What is good is not always obvious to us anymore. This is how Paul describes our natural condition in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You see, due to sin, our faculties of spiritual discernment have been devastated. And so Paul's prayer here is for the renewing presence of the Holy Spirit. 
of that Holy Spirit who restores our fallen nature so that we can, of ourselves, we can actually see the goodness of God's will again. Paul knows that without the continuing presence of the Holy Spirit, all the growing fruit that he sees in the Colossian church, the faith, hope, and love, without the Spirit, that will all dry up. Brothers and sisters, can you see how important the role of the Holy Spirit is in the life of a Christian? Do you recognize that the Holy Spirit is arguably the greatest gift that our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, has given to us? In fact, Christ himself promised his own disciples that he would pray on their behalf. And he told them that he would pray that they would be filled with the Spirit. He said to his disciples, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Shortly later, Jesus also explains, he says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So then, while Christ is our, indeed, our chief prophet, our chief teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God, as Lord's Day 12 puts it. From heaven he has sent his Holy Spirit so that his message would be confirmed in our hearts. And what's more, what Christ does through his Holy Spirit is to make us conformed into his image, to remake us in his likeness, To put it simply, the Spirit makes us look and act like Christ. And we might even be so bold as to say that what Paul is praying would happen in the life of the Colossian church had already happened in a similar way in the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself grew in the knowledge of God's will through the Spirit's wisdom and understanding. Isaiah 11 verse 2 prophesies of how Jesus would be anointed with the Holy Spirit And there Isaiah says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. You see, Christ too came to a knowledge of God's will through the wisdom and understanding that the spirit gave him. Brothers and sisters, there's something in the Apostle Paul's prayer here that is very countercultural. Something even that goes against the prevailing Christian culture. Contemporary Christian culture is so preoccupied with feeling and emotions. And I think that we are probably too very quick to define faith as a feeling. A feeling of trust or of love for God. Very probably we are tempted to judge our fellow Christians according to how much heart they show in their Christian life. But this is only one side of the coin. In fact, Scripture does not separate the heart from the mind at all. It does never, it does never separate the affectionate from the intellectual. Paul's prayer here in verse 9 emphasizes that vital intellectual aspect. Now, of course, I don't want to say that we are saved by how much we know. Of course not. That would be a perversion of the gospel. 
But at the same time, we ought to seriously ask whether our reluctance to dedicate ourselves to serious Bible study or our reluctance even to hold each other to certain expectations in this regard. We ought to ask whether what we're really doing is making life easier for our human nature, which considers God's will to be foolish. Instead, brothers and sisters, shouldn't we as spirit-filled Christians walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ be pursuing the knowledge of God's will and his revealed word? If Paul had his way, the answer would be yes. Let's look now at our second point, which is the effect of this knowledge. Paul comes to the effect of this knowledge in the next verse, in verse 10. Paul says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. For Paul, this knowledge of God's will should not yield an ecstatic or a hyper-spiritual experience. Instead, the effect of this knowledge should be in our daily living. Knowing God's will provides direction. Provides direction in everyday life. When we know what God desires of us, this makes us able to strive to please Him. Strive to please Him in every way. You see, there comes a point in our Christian walk where living obediently before God isn't about doing the bare minimums anymore. Or it's not about don't do this and don't do that. We reach a point where the motivation changes, where we indeed begin to feel a heartfelt desire within ourselves to lead our life in a certain way that God would actually delight in, that he would rejoice in. And so then Paul prays for Four main behaviors that characterize a life that is lived worthy of the Lord. You see those in these verses. Such a life involves bearing fruit in every good work, verse 10. Increasing in the knowledge of God, again, verse 10. Being strengthened with all power, verse 11. And giving thanks, verse 12. And as we mentioned earlier, we can see that in the previous verses... Uh, these were things that the Colossians had already been doing to some extent, by God's grace. But Paul wants them to continue to grow in these areas. You notice that by how he uses the words all, how he uses the word every, all spiritual wisdom and understanding, he says, fully pleasing to him, every good work with all power and even all endurance and patience. The point is here that the Colossians have only reached a part of these things. Paul wants them to keep going until they finally reach all of it. And out of that list, uh, verse 11 probably stands out as rather striking. It is curious, isn't it, that one of the ways in which we live worthy of God, by which we please Him, is to be strengthened with all power. Be strengthened with all power. It's interesting because that is something passive. That is something we don't do. God does it to us. That is, God provides the strength. That is, God delights in us when we turn to him for strength. That is, he's not disappointed when we need to rely on him because we failed. 
or because we can't go on any longer. In fact, he is pleased when we seek that strength from him. And even more, he is pleased to give it. And that strength also comes from an amazing source, doesn't it? Look at what Paul says. According to his glorious might. According to his glorious might. That's a very rich concept. This is the might that originates in God's glory. Think of a doxology, for example, like Revelation 5.13. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power. Glory and power is the exact same words as we find in our text. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. That is, when we are strengthened through the Holy Spirit in our daily lives, it's in some way a part of God's heavenly majesty and glory. The heavenly majesty which... The angels sing praises about in heaven, that glory and and majesty that broke into the world on that Christmas morning. It's that heavenly majesty and glory that enters into us when God strengthens us by his power. Imagine that. How amazing it is that we can be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. But notice too what this glorious might empowers us to do. We might expect that it would empower us to do great and mighty things, that it would empower us to do some impression, impressive mission work or some great work of charity perhaps. And of course it's true that God's strength does enable us to do those things. But that's not what Paul points out here. Instead, he says that it's for all endurance and patience with joy. You see, the glorious strength of God empowers us to do something so mundane, something so regular, something so plain. That is, we endure, we hold fast, we stand firm. We're gracious, we're patient. And at the same time, God gives us the strength to lead a patient life with joy. Somehow with a deep sense of happiness throughout our struggles. This might seem very anticlimactic. But it's true, isn't it? If you've ever been struck or impressed by one of your fellow Christians, you've probably been impressed by their endurance. The strongest Christian you know is probably someone who's endured many hardships. The passing away of loved ones, the death of a child, struggle with cancer or some other sickness, financial ruin or loss. But we're struck. We're struck by how that person somehow has not given up on Jesus. They've endured. In fact, they've even retained somehow a small sense of joy in their life. You see, it's because of all these trials, temptations, or it's even because of of complacency at times that we face as Christians. It's for all those reasons that having this kind of patient endurance is so difficult. It may very well be the most difficult thing that we have to do. 
It may also be especially important for those of us who are in our senior years to remember this. Perhaps you may be recently widowed. You may be experiencing a crippling loneliness. Perhaps depression is a reality in your life. You might even be disappointed in the fact that you cannot do what you used to do. Perhaps even the way in which you used to serve the church is not the same anymore. But then it's important to take to heart what Paul shows us here. Because the amazing, glorious power of God is not primarily given to us to make us achieve amazing out of the ordinary sorts of things. It's, in fact, the fuel we need simply to keep going. To continue to fight the good fight of the faith. Again, in this respect too, brothers and sisters, every Christian is following in the footsteps of our Savior. Jesus Christ. Christ too was empowered throughout his ministry by the power of God himself. Luke 4 tells us how the Holy Spirit filled our Savior with power. It says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. You see, Christ was empowered in his preaching task by the Holy Spirit. Christ, too, had to patiently rely on strength from his heavenly Father. And like like us, too, Christ was strengthened so that he might endure. In fact, more than anyone, Christ showed the utmost endurance in the face of difficulties. Hebrews 12 tells us, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. From the power of his divine nature, Christ was able to endure what none of us could ever bear so that we wouldn't have to endure it. He bore God's wrath against sin. He endured the most difficult temptations and faced faced the most hated opposition that a man could face but for us, to deliver us from our sins. He endured. And probably the greatest of all, brothers and sisters, is that Christ lived a life pleasing to God. Christ accomplished this more than anyone. The Lord Jesus loved his Father with his whole heart, soul, and mind. He lived a life worthy of the Lord more than any other person had ever done. And has ever done. The life he lived was perfectly worthy. It was so worthy that his death served as the blameless sacrifice needed to atone for our sins. It made him worthy, as Revelation 5 puts it, to open the scroll and to break its seven seals. This then is the song that is sung in heaven. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. So then, brothers and sisters, we can say that Paul's prayer is for the Colossians and for us to be conformed more and more into the image of Christ. This means that as we come to know God and as we come to know his will more and more through the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, It also means that our lives will be changed outwardly 
Do you show a distinct Christ-likeness in your everyday life? Do you bear fruit in good works, for example? If you were to keep a strict agenda of all your activities throughout a week or throughout a month, would there be evidence of self-sacrifice? Evidence of serving others? Something to show that you've understood what the servant heart of Jesus is like? Would there be evidence of growth and knowledge of God's will? Taking a keen interest in applying the truths of God's word to the realities of everyday life? To borrow some terminology from Paul's prayer, do you ask yourself whether what you do is worthy of the Lord? What I spend time doing with my friends, is it worthy of the Lord? My behavior in the workplace, when I speak to my coworkers, is it worthy of the Lord? Is it in character with who he is? You see, that Lord is your loving and long-suffering master, Jesus Christ. So long as he has not yet returned or called you home, his work in you is not finished yet. His work of recreation in your life is always ongoing. Day by day, through his Holy Spirit, he is drawing you. He is drawing you into deeper fellowship with himself. And he wants you to know him so intimately that you understand who he is, what he has done, what he loves, and what makes him rejoice. Amen. In response, let's sing together. The words of speak, O Lord. Speak, O Lord, a prayer which very much echoes the prayer of the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1. Speak, O Lord. <clears throat> 